0: listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Emil. Hi, nice to be here. Good to have you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter, and this is the Non-Zero Podcast, and you are Emil P. Torres. Uh, a the author most recently the book Human Extin- Extinction A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. We will have reason to talk more about human extinction before this is o- over. Um, I'm very uh, interested in this and looking forward to it because, um, you are, I would say, one of the fiercest, if not the fiercest, critic of. Effective altruism, such related movements as long-termism and some other ones uh, that you see as closely related to it that we'll get into. Uh, And yet, there was a time when you were a card-carrying member of the effective altruism movement, something of a long-termist yourself. And uh, in fact, I just went back and listened to a conversation you and I had on kind of the predecessor of this uh, platform that, that evolved into the non-zero podcast platform six years ago. Uh, at that point, you were at an institute co-founded by noted long-termist Nick Bostrom. You seem to have no complaints about being that. We you talked about the risk of uh, the coming risk of superintelligence, and of course that that's one uh, place where this is uh, long-termism has entered the news in a big way with this whole debate. Some of the big AI doomers are long-termists, and we'll get into the meaning of these terms a little bit uh, more. And of course, effective altruism uh, first uh, entered the, I would say, public view in in a big and kind of notorious way uh, beginning a little more than a year ago when the Sam Bankman-Fried thing blew up because he was a uh, a big donor, an effective altruist, a big donor to EA uh, causes. So, uh i want to ask you like what exactly happened to change your view but first of all um let's just do a little discussion of terminology uh, what how would you define and and i do want to get into your whole larger tescreal acronym if that's how you pronounce it but not not yet we'll we'll get to that for now let's focus on uh, long-termism, which is, which is widely seen as a kind of a, a, a branch of effective altruism or something, that that connection is widely accepted. Even if the larger connections you're making to other movements may be more controversial, but we'll get into those. For now, how would you define uh, long-termism? Yeah. Um,
1: so long-termism comes in different varieties. Um, you, you might distinguish between a, a moderate Version and a radical version. Uh, the former says that uh, shaping the far future of humanity, ensuring that the far future goes well, is a key moral priority. So that's the the uh, article used. A uh, radical long termism says it's the key moral priority for our time, you know, the, this this century uh, and perhaps beyond. And really, the key idea is that uh, the value of our actions today. Uh, may be determined primarily, um, maybe overwhelmingly, by their further future effects. And so this is based on uh, insights from modern cosmology, in particular a field called physical eschatology, uh, that uh, according to which Earth will remain habitable for you know roughly another billion years, maybe 800 million years, you know, very... Mm-hmm. Long time. If we spread beyond Earth, then the t- two things: one, the universe is huge. This is a point about sort of cosmography. You know how uh, how big is the universe? Um, and then temporally, along the temporal dimension, the universe itself will remain habitable for an ex- extremely long time. So, you know, maybe ten to the forty years, a one followed by forty zeros. That's when protons are expected to decay. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know if protons decay. Um, if they don't, then life could. Persist even beyond that. The heat death of the universe is supposed to happen for 10 to the 100 years. So, all of that implies uh, that if humanity survives on Earth, spreads beyond, uh, beyond our solar system, then the future human population could be absolutely enormous. And so, the reasoning is when you have these, this sort of uh, view about the habitability and size of the universe, and you combine that with the effective altruist commitment to do the most quote-unquote good possible in the universe, then you get the following line of reasoning. If the goal is to positively influence the greatest number of people, Mm -hmm. and if most people who could exist will exist in the very far future, then maybe what you should be doing is focusing on how your actions today might affect those far future people. Because even if you, if there's an action today that affects a tiny percentage of future people, by virtue of the fact that the number of future people could be absolutely astronomical, literally astronomical, that you may still ultimately do more good by by affecting them than focusing on current day people. For example, lifting the 1.3 billion people currently in multidimensional poverty out of that poverty.
0: So and that's why can I say to some extent your critique is a critique from the left, that we're ignoring the needs of a lot of needy people, well, that long termism at least taken to certain uh, magnitudes could wind up leading us to ignore the needs of needy people in the here and now. The idea being that, well, if we do X, Y, and Z now, which granted will exact some pain on some people, that will increase the chances of humanity surviving long enough to populate planets. You know, getting to a point where the whole human experiment is safe, and whatever kind of intelligence we evolve into flourishes, and the light of consciousness spreads and so on, so it's a critique. It's a critique from the left, uh, right. I mean that that's fair to say. So I think part of the critique is that it's it's the uh, the
1: implication of the long termist view that minimizes or trivializes current day problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, you know Nick Bostrom refers to uh, the worst disasters and atrocities of the 20th centuries. 20th century, as mere ripples on the surface of the great sea of life. So mm-hmm. this, you know, he, he refers uh, in other uh, papers to uh, some kind of global catastrophe um, involving, for example, uh, the spread of some virus, you know, global pandemic, that is non-existential in nature as a giant um, uh, misstep for, a giant disaster for uh, mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, a giant misstep for man, a small misstep for mankind. Sorry, oh, I did a little Neil exactly.
0: Armstrong uh, twist there. Okay,
1: yeah, obviously reference to, to that. So basically, the, the idea is that you know even uh, really large scale, horrific, a um, uh, catastrophic you know events from the grand cosmic perspective, if they're not existential, meaning that they aren't going to. Significantly reduce the amount of value that could exist in the future. Those just kind of fade into the horizon, into nothingness. They're just not a big deal from this sort of grand, you know, cosmic uh, point of view. So that mm-hmm. that's one of the the angles of critical attack on this particular view. Okay,
0: so that's long termism, and again, it's very much part of the AI debate. Uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky is a long termist. Um, and uh, and 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 the kind of AI doomer in chief. Um, and also I should say effective altruism entered this recent controversy at OpenAI, the drama with Sam Altman, the the attempted deposing of him, because uh, some at least one prom the, the main person on the board he had had the most obvious friction with was an EA person, and we can get into all that. So, anyway, it's all in the news. Now that we've talked about long termism, let's talk a little about effective altruism. Because again, long termism is a kind of a a branch of AI in a certain sense uh, uh, of of EA in a certain sense, and it wasn't an originally prominent branch. Okay, as it happens, like I you know I, I see if you go if you follow the, the 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 family tree of EA to its very root. Okay. On the way, you encounter such uh, philosophers as Will McCaskill, perhaps the most prominent philosopher, EA advocate, and an official uh, uh, long-termist, certainly after his most recent book, uh, What We Owe the Future. Um, You know, Nick Bostrom, Toby, Toby, is it Orb or Ord? What's his last name? It's Ord. Ord. Uh, But if you you go further, I would say you get to Peter Singer, right? Uh, With effective altruism. Now, I know Peter, as it happens, I had lunch with him yesterday. and and uh, you know, when he conceived of it, he, he wasn't the long termism thing wasn't. You know, his main his main point, which people can can now kind of try to trivialize. But he was saying, like, you know, a lot of people give money and feel great about themselves, but a lot of people, if your if your goal is to maximize uh, the benefit for human well being, and Peter being utilitarian, that's the way he sees the goal. Um, you know, maybe you're not spending your money that well. I mean, you should ask yourself, like, is the art museum that caters to affluent people the thing more in need of your money than, say, more mosquito nets in Africa? And he'd say the same thing about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. It's great. It's great to make one kid with cancer happy for a day or two. But if you're spending like $500,000 doing it, maybe there's a you know another way to spend your money. These seem to be very reasonable questions. You can do what you will with them once they've been called to your attention, but it was a much more modest enterprise in a certain sense when it began, and then at some point, long termism, which I have sympathy with in principle, I, I should say. I mean, I I, I don't want to see us end all life on Earth, <laughs> or even just the human species, and 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 one reason is the 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 are the future generations to come that could otherwise. Uh, benefit and and so on, so I I want to emphasize that you know EA has evolved and and that's an interesting thing and maybe when you start talking about its evolution you will get into the question I want to eventually ask you about your own alienation from the movement I don't know but what do you want to say about all that? <laughs> yeah, so I I think that's that's right. Um,
1: initially you know EA. Uh, was kind of founded around 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giving What We Can was the first EA organization uh, founded, co-founded by uh, Toby Ord and, and Will McCaskill, who you mentioned earlier. Um, but the the genealogy, the lineage of thinking that led to EA does go back quite directly to a 1972 paper written by Peter Singer on affluence, famine, and, and morality. Um, and so this this it was this paper that, of course, he introduced uh, the famous drowning child um, uh, scenario to try to motivate his conclusion that, uh, you know, spatial distance shouldn't matter. So if there's somebody who's, you know, a, a child, uh, you know, anybody on the other
0: side of. And the idea uh, is it, it, if you saw a drowning child and somebody said, if you'll trade in your Mercedes for a Chevy, you can save that child, you'd say yes. Was that the gist of it? And, the gist and- of it. And yeah. he's saying, in effect, you face that choice. You could take money you're using for, you know, things that don't really enrich your life all that much, and you could save a bunch of children. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if if you're 10 feet away from a child who happens to be drowning in a lake, you just, let, let's say you just bought new pants and shoes and so on. Most mm-hmm. people wouldn't hesitate to ruin their new clothes to go and, and save Okay, that child. was
0: the exact thing. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, what does it matter that the the, there are children who are you know three thousand miles uh, uh, away? What what does spatial distance have to do with ethics? And so that was the idea. So maybe what you should do is not buy the expensive pants and shoes that you don't need in the first place, and take that money and donate it to to save a child. So that is the altruism part. You know. So 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 you know if you're sold then on Singer's argument, and you say, okay, I agree, I want to be an altruist, there's a further question that he didn't really explore that much, which is, who do I donate my money to? You know, what what are actually the most effective ways of uh, saving a child on, on the other side of the, the world? And so that, that was sort of what was novel about effective altruism, is this uh, attempt to use quantitative tools, qualities and dailies, these are sort of metrics for try, trying to compare uh, benefits and harms uh, uh, across people and illnesses and situations and so on. Um, and use the tools of decision theory, expected value theory in particular, to uh, ultimately to then rank different charities according to their their effectiveness. There are a lot of problems with the way that they, they rank uh, these charities because there is a very strong quantitative bias. Um, but nonetheless, this was the idea. Okay, I'm sold on Singer's argument. I wanna be an altruist. Second question, how do I be the best altruist I can possibly be? How do I maximize my altruistic efforts in the world? And so that was the idea behind uh, effective altruism. And, and really it was, so initially the focus was almost entirely on alleviating global poverty. Later on, they added animal welfare, so ending factory farming. They, some of them are even concerned about wild I mean, of course,
0: suffering. Peter, Peter uh, in a way first gained public renown for writing the book Animal Liberation a long time ago, which became kind of the Bible of the animal rights movement, laid out the, the logic behind taking the phrase animal rights as opposed to just animal welfare seriously, so yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and so,
1: yeah, I mean, some EAs are, uh, you know, even concerned about wild animal suffering, the suffering of shrimp. You know, maybe the, their suffering is, is very... That's where I draw uh, the
0: line personally, but it's up to them. Yeah. So, <laughs> know, maybe which animals they worry about. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and given, you know, their, their sort of quantitative, um, generally
1: utilitarian approach, um, the, the reasoning is like, okay, shrimp, maybe they uh, suffer very little, but the fact that there are so many of them. The total quantity of suffering might actually be, you know, significant. And so later on, then, you know, um years after, a few years after EA was was sort of founded, uh, some of these EAs began to read the work of Nick Bostrom. And Nick Bostrom uh integrated these uh insights from modern cosmology, I mentioned the field of physical eschatology, into a broadly kind of utilitarian framework. And so then they started to realize, okay, yeah, actually, if most people who could exist will exist in the far future, millions, billions, and trillions of years from now, and if my goal is to do the most good possible, maybe I should be focusing on those far future uh, people rather than current-day people. And that's how the long-termist cause area, as they would refer to it, mm-hmm. was born. And then over the really the past like five years, long-termism has become, like the, the EA community as a whole, has started to shift more towards uh, long-termist, you know, particularly Mm long-termist projects, causes, uh, and so on, and away from the more traditional EA focus on global poverty and animal Mm -hmm. welfare.
0: And so last time I talked to you, as I said, six years ago, you were a happy uh, colleague of Nick Nick Bostrom's at the very institute he co-founded. Now, what happened? Yeah, and so just to be clear, I I was a visitor at the Future of Humanity Institute. Yeah, but I you were kind of talking the talk when I said, what are the greatest threats to humankind? You said, well, if you want to think super long term, I would say, you know, super intelligence is certainly, you know, super uh, super intelligent AI is certainly in the running. Um, you were not filled with discontent about the EA and long termist movement. So, something something has changed. Also, yes. at that point, you were going by Phil. What has changed? Is this like a total? So you're, 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 your name is Emil Philip Torres. Is that right? Um, so uh, legal name is Philip Torres. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. you've changed so, your legal name?
1: So I, I'll I'll explain that in a moment. Um, okay. It's, it's, so just to be clear, but I just wanted to um, be more precise about how long I was at this particular institute, FHI. Okay. So okay. that was a fairly brief stay. I was in the, the long-termist community for a decade or so. I mean, I initially mm-hmm. encountered long-termism through transhumanism because there's a very tight link. Which, by the way, the is the
0: T in your acronym Tescreal, which we will eventually exactly. unfold entirely. Go ahead. Yeah. From transhumanism to long-termism. The T Right. The and L you tescri- see this as kind of an interconnected, you see it as one big kind of blob of people, not to not to minimize the sophistication of your worldview, but it's kind of that, right? It's like it's like this, it's like this network of uh, it's almost like everyone who's in this space has a little of all these letters in them, even if not all of all these letters. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, so
1: I, I, I do. I, I would want to add some um, some nuance. nuance. Well, I, I I don't want to put it that way because I that sounds condescending. I don't mean it like that at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. But, but so I mean that, that the Tescriol acronym that uh, was introduced during a. Uh, collaboration. I was uh, part of with uh, Dr. Tindy Gebrew, computer scientist who was from Google, um, and
0: yeah, well, well-known AI well ethics known. person. Who did she co-coin the phrase "stochastic parrots" or something? Or did she? yeah, so that was actually Emily Bender's
1: term. Oh,
0: but um, she was on the paper. She was uh, she was a co-author yes. of the paper in which it was rolled out. Okay. Yes, uh, absolutely.
1: And so, so we were we were specifically trying to understand. What are the various ideologies that have that, that are shaping and have driven the current race to build AGI? Mm-hmm. And so the claim isn't that like this is just uh, you know, th- these ideologies form just kind of like a single blob. Um, it's that right. there are strains of these ideologies that are absolutely crucial to understand how we got to where we are. Why is AGI on the, the map to begin with? You have people like Yakowski out there arguing that, you know, AGI, we're on the verge of perhaps creating AGI. If we do, it's going to, to kill everybody on Earth. But historically, he was part of a movement of people that were pushing for uh, the development of AGI. Yeah, he, he's AGI.
0: like the reverse image of you. He was on my podcast some t- long ago, and he was in mid-transition. He wasn't a doomer yet, but he was starting yeah. to sound cautionary notes about AI. So you and he, these he people, like live in some kind, it's some kind of a quantum entanglement thing going on here <laughs> where you are complementary. Um, but, uh, a lot of these people just to, to, to add real fast, um, were accelerationists
1: before uh-huh. they were doomers. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the term doomer is perhaps a bit misleading because, uh, these individuals remain accelerationists about pretty much everything except for AGI and a small handful of uh, similar adver- advanced uh, uh, merging or anticipated future technology. Yeah. So like molecular nanotechnology would be another example. And, so and by the, the way,
0: accelerationism the, is now officially in the lexicon because the New York Times, you may have seen this piece, only a couple of days ago did the piece introducing accelerationism as an idea in the tech world. These are the people who want to speed up technological evolution. Okay, go ahead. And by the way, before long, we should get back to the point where I interrupted you where you mentioned the word transhumanism and we we got off on this, Jack. You were talking about your own personal journey, but go ahead and finish up what you're saying and then we can get back to your own personal journey.
1: Yeah, we'll circle back around, I'm sure, to accelerationism and doomerism and the the connections between the two. Um, So, yeah, I I, I mean, I would say that I mean, the whole reason I was at FHI, Future of Man Institute, for a week was to give a talk. The reason I was asked to give a talk is because I had been a researcher immersed in this long termist community long before there was a word for the, I mean, before long termism, the term was uh, a bit more cumbersome, which is people who study existential risk. Mm-hmm. So that was me. My work focused on existential risk for, you know, years, I mean, almost a, a decade. Um, and then you know since you know around maybe 2018 especially uh, 2019 um i have completely changed my opinion about the value and um and goodness of the existential risk
0: uh, program okay. and what induced so, the transformation
1: yeah so there were uh, a few causes one was a realization that uh, I, I, I part of it, so this this is the most embarrassing aspect of why I uh, changed my views. I started to read seriously and to talk with scholars who basically aren't white men and realized that the utopian vision, which is at the very heart of the of transhumanism and the long termist vision, is in my judgment uh, just deeply impoverished. I mean, it was designed, it was crafted by almost entirely by white men at you know, privileged white men at elite universities like Oxford and in Silicon Valley. Um, it's deeply capitalistic. It's extremely Baconian. It's very colonialist <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, uh, at, at, with respect to its core commitments.
0: You're and so, saying this long-termism itself has these? The provisions of the okay. future which is so you know well the- or do you mean utopianism because those are very different things i mean in a certain some long termists are almost the opposite of utopians they're dystopians they think that we are headed for a dystopia and we have to intervene we need regulation at the national level and the international level actually i think we need that for ai although i'm not right. i'm not a, do- a yudkowsky i doomer but but that aside um so so utopianism isn't the same as long termism and and well, yeah. Let me leave it there. I would comment on that. Like, uh, I'll, I want to extend that further in a second. But go ahead. So,
1: as as I think you know, utopianism uh, throughout history has oftentimes been bound up with apocalypticism. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, there's this this future. I mean, on you know certain religious uh, views, there's this certain there's this future event that we need to pass through. It's this this cataclysmic paroxysm at the end of time and but once we're and so passing through that that is going to be traumatic and you know awful and so on but once we're through it we get paradox we get utopia and so you you see basically the the exact same thing with uh long-termism particularly with respect to agi so the whole reason agi is is on the map in the first place is because it was widely thought that it is the vehicle that's going to take us from our present moment, which is miserable and mediocre, to this utopian, paradisical world full of astronomical amounts of value, in which we get to live forever. We, you know, radically reengineer humanity. We spread throughout space, and so on and so on. And, and so, th- let me just interrupt. Then- I'm not
0: sure we defined uh, just for the uh, people who don't do this for you know full time. I mean, I guess almost everybody knows by now that AGI is artificial general intelligence, but kind of beyond that, there's this idea in this community that although AGI sounds like, okay, now you've got a machine as smart as a human, it kind of signifies something much more than that because the idea is that once you get to that point, the the importance of an evolution of AI, you know, begin to expand and grow respectively, speed up respectively, um, partly because you can replicate these things without limit in principle, and also because in the singularitarian view, like there's, when technological evolution gets, pro, gets to the point where the AI can improve itself, you're, you're, you're going through this threshold where suddenly it, it gets smarter and, smarter and smarter and smarter. So, okay, that's a footnote, and now you can go on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I, on the... um. I mean to to generalize
1: a bit, but uh, this is accurate. For long term, is pretty much everything is an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, all of the problems we're facing today, uh, the the so-called problem of of aging and so on, all of these are just engineering problems. Well, what makes a good engineer? Intelligence, um, which is a is a concept that turns out to be very not well defined. But, okay, so putting that in scare quotes, intelligence, that's what makes a good engineer. Therefore, if you have a super intelligence, you have a super engineer. If you mm-hmm. have a super engineer, then you get, to, you get everything you possibly want. In fact, they, they literally refer to the creation of the future they hope to bring about as, in Bostrom's words, Nick Bostrom, uh, paradise engineered. And so the idea is, so once you get AGI, once you get human level uh, AGI, chances are it's going to self-improve. Then you get superintelligence. So that's a, that's a subtype of AGI. ASI mm-hmm. is what they sometimes call it, artificial superintelligence. Once you get ASI, two things are probably going to happen. One, it's going to give us everything we want. So we, then we get to colonize space, we get to live forever, and so on and so on. Two, the second uh, possibility is that it's going to kill everyone. By default, as a result of an uh, uh, unintended consequence of Uh, misaligned goals that is goals that are misaligned with what they really mean is goals that are misaligned with the the particular long-termist view. So this is why for long-termists and, uh, you know, people in the test rule tradition uh, more generally, AGI is so important. Once you get AGI, you get superintelligence. If superintelligence is properly value aligned, we get everything. We get paradise. If it's not, then not only do 8 billion people die, but all of the value, the astronomical near-infinite amounts of value that could have existed in the future, none of that will exist. And on their view, uh, as I discuss in great detail in part two of my book, uh, on their view, that the opportunity cost, the loss of all of that value associated with the state or condition of being extinct, that constitutes by far the greatest aspect, uh, the, um, the number one reason why human extinction would be a... In unthinkable moral catastrophe. So for them, AGI is extremely important. And so you could see then how the utopianism is bound up with the apocalypticism. And and really, what, what changed is you had people initially who were just utopians about mm-hmm. AGI. You know, so Yudkowsky would be a good example. And then over time, they started to, to realize, oh, actually, if we <laughs> built the system that is wildly more quote unquote intelligent than us, we might have some very serious problems trying to control it and consequently utopia might not be the default outcome apocalypse in a secular sense mm-hmm. in particular meaning total human extinction that might be the default outcome and so that's how you the, the doomer you know, within that testicle right. movement now okay emerged.
0: but here's here's one thing i don't totally get so you are saying that testicle, estrial whatever is in some sense a coherent thing. We've already talked about. Okay, the T is transhumanism, which is like belief in the fusing of technology with our with biology to transform the nature of human experience, extend life, brain chips, everything. Um, uh, That that's that. Now E is extropianism. Eh, it's kind of obscure. The C cosmism, kind of obscure. Let's don't get hung up on those. Now the S was uh, the singulitarianism, which we discussed. T S C uh then E the E A and L at the end, uh, we've talked about effective altruism, long-termism. What is the what is the R? Uh, rationalism. Oh, uh, rationalism. Now that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the rationalist community is, you know, that now that officially entered the lexicon about a year ago when the New York Times declared it an official part of the lexicon and wrote about the whole controversy with uh, Scott Alexander, not his real name, I guess we now know, but but the Slate Star Codex guy who now has a Substack newsletter with a slightly different name. um, He was doxed kind of, right? And that led to a bunch of publicity, but he was one of the leaders of the rationalist movement, which is just, let's be rational, right? They, they, they really like Bayesian analysis in particular. And you see a connection with utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is kind of, let's have an ethics we can be rational about, as opposed to this Kantian nebulousness and, you know, virtue ethics and this stuff that's so hard to like, like in principle, you could quantify your analysis if you're a utilitarian. Um, So yeah, so then rationalism, which, you know, like utilitarianism would not seem to have an inherent connection to the other stuff, right? You could be a rationalist utilitarian dystopian Pessimist about technology in principle. In fact, come to think of it, that's what I consider myself almost. But but um but you're saying as it happens, and is this just like a sociological fact that it played out this way? You're saying as it happens, the rationalist and utilitarian elements fed into these other things that you're kind of objecting to more directly, in a sense, that have these more obvious policy implications and and, and values implications
1: yeah so there are multiple reasons uh, to think of the bundle as a bundle Uh one is that i don't think you can you can properly understand why there is a race to build agi right now without um taking into consideration all of these different letters in the uh, all the different ideologies that are represented in the acronym so rationalism has played a huge part. Okay, but let me why, just interrupt
0: you because there's an sorry. objection that must have occurred to people now. You just said, and, and it was something I was going to ask you about, and you we've kind of alluded to, it, but you said if you're gonna understand the race to build AGI and how it grows out of this bundle test reel, but we've already said that the people most opposed to the race to build AI are also part of this bundle. Yudkowsky. I mean, that's the fundamental paradox I don't totally get in your in your acronym because you also say Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are part of it. Well Peter Thiel yeah. is an accelerationist, Elon Musk, well he's actually he acts like an accelerationist but he calls himself an AI doomer and he he does he did call for a pause in AI. Yeah. So so you're you're you seem to be encompassing these two polar opposites into like yeah. a single movement or something. Yeah, so I absolutely agree that
1: that at first glance, it looks confusing, but it's not. So all of these individuals want AGI. They differ on the probability of apocalypse, of existential catastrophe and human extinction, if we build AGI in the near future. So people like Bostrom are, you know, he he was interviewed, um, he was asked on stage back in uh, 2017. Um, So a few years after he wrote in his book, Superintelligence, published in 2014, that the default outcome of superintelligence is doom, to quote him. Uh, he was asked, should we build superintelligence? And he did not hesitate to say yes. People like Yudkowsky, they
0: absolutely want AGI. They just think that, that so, there, so one way to, to Wait, understand- But he says he doesn't. He says bomb the chip plants, right? He says he, he, says he does not want AGI. One way to understand it is you've got AI safety research
1: on the one hand, and Mm -hmm. AI capabilities research on the other hand. Capabilities research is trying to build in AGI. Safety research is trying to figure out how to build it in a safe way. And and long-termists, doomers in particular, see our current situation as a desperate race between these two fields. And Mm -hmm. on their view, so if time goes this way, you've got capabilities research here, safety research here, Capability research is way ahead of safety research. So what they want is the reverse to be the case. And so it's, they're, what they're saying is slow down capabilities research as much as as much as much necessary for safety research to uh, t- take the lead. And as soon as you have that configuration, then it's pedal to the metal, build
0: AGI as soon as possible, because AGI is the key to paradise. But, but I thought Yudkowski's yeah. argument was that, look, if it's this much smarter than us, we can't win. It's like we know which animal winds up in the zoo when one is smarter than the other. It almost for sometimes it sounds like end of argument. Although I know he, he has more sophisticated arguments than that, which I haven't yet managed to grasp. Um, the uh, but but right, I mean, he wouldn't say he wouldn't say he wants to end and end. I thought progress in AI research. He thinks we're doomed if we get to AGI. I thought. So I do not believe that is his view. Um, I is had it a his stated view? Is it what he says? I think it's what he says, no? No, so I, I think what his view is. So
1: uh, so so with so you've got accelerationists on one side, doomers on the other side. He is at the very far extreme of the doomers. So just, mm-hmm. just to point that out to begin with. Um, but his view, consequently, is that capabilities research, so if you zoom out, you see that capabilities research is so far ahead of AI safety. Maybe we need like a century or maybe 300 years mm-hmm. to, to properly do safety research. And so, so this is um, the, the extent to which someone believes that we're on the verge of total annihilation um, comes down to some extent to how they see the divergence between capabilities research and uh, safety research. So, on his view, what' his research is so far ahead that a complete and total indefinite so this is his stated view in this Time magazine article indefinite ban complete ban on these frontier models that mm-hmm. is the only way we're going to avoid apocalypse uh, in the future so what what is the point of the it's not a permanent ban it's an indefinite ban and the, mm-hmm. the what he wants is for there to be this indefinite ban so that the safety research has all you know plenty enough time to catch up and as soon as safety research takes the lead moves ahead of capabilities research then you know absolutely he's going to want to move ahead with agi as soon as possible because because if you have a configuration where safety research is ahead of capabilities research what is the implication the implication is that you get a value aligned so-called value aligned agi and if you have a value aligned agi then you say cure aging it does that you say colonize space it thinks for about 10 seconds maybe 15 seconds goes, okay, I figured out exactly how to do, how to set out these von Neumann probes in in every direction Mm -hmm. and so on. And so I think, you know, Bostrom, uh, um, in contrast to Yudkowsky, um, uh, so far as I can tell, so so far as I can infer from what he said recently, capabilities research isn't that far ahead of safety research. And so he was recently asked in uh, an interview um, what he thinks about like the pause AI movement. Uh, And he said, well, I think it's good. You know, we should be taking these risks seriously. But he said, I'm worried that the pause AI movement is going to result in a kind of stigma, a taboo against AGI. That's going to result in a situation where once AI safety is ahead of AI capabilities, nobody's going to want to build an AGI because there's this this taboo against it. And In his view, and he's explicit about this, that would be an existential catastrophe failing to create AGI. So this is an example of a doomer. That seems incredibly that implausible to, to me.
0: I got I got to say, the idea that you can ultimately stop this stuff from evolving seems to me crazy, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I mean, anyways, I mean, th- this is their view. And I, I think this is the key difference between um, accelerationists. Well, there's a little bit more to say about that. But a, one of the two main differences between accelerationists in particular, effective accelerations, EAC, as they uh, pronounce the um, acronym, and the more traditional Doomer sort of long-termists, is is Mm -hmm. really, it's their probability estimate of uh, the chance of doom in the near future. And in fact, for a lot of accelerations, they'll say the default outcome, contra Bostrom and Yudkowsky and so on, is utopia. And so actually this field of AI safety is just kind of irrelevant. What we need is just to advance capabilities research ensure that it's open source that the, um, and so the free market can work its magic. Because if you have the uh, AGI systems that are open source, then you get a whole bunch of AGI's that emerge roughly around the same time, then you get a balance of of terror. And so, you know, their view is, okay, the free market is the solution to the AI safety problem. And all, all of that research is just kind of irrelevant. Let the free market solve the problem plow ahead with capabilities research. So you, all of this is just basically just part of the same t- transhumanist, cosmist, rationalist, and so on tradition. They just differ on this key issue about their so-called P doom probability of doom, if AGI is built in the near future.
0: Um, so
1: I, I, I hope that, that makes yeah,
0: sense. I, I want to I uh, explore that a little further. But first, let's make sure we've Ah, uh, gotten to your moment of transformation and flesh that out fully. i'm I, I keep I think I keep steering you off course. i'm, I'm i I want to understand your personal transformation uh, as fully as possible. And also, is there any kind of sociological backstory or political backstory? Like did you have like a bitter priority dispute with anybody in the movement or anything, or like they stole money from you or no no, no, nothing
1: okay. like that at all. I mean, really, okay. it was on the one hand, it was sort of realizing, okay, this utopian vision. It's just like, hypercapitalistic it's baconian it's all about subjugating nature you know maximizing 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 it's you know there's utopia is one could argue there are nuances to this as well but one could argue utopia is sort of inherently exclusionary so who gets left out of the long term is the real sort of utopia you know one of the most striking features of the real literature is that there's virtually zero reference at all to what the future could and more importantly should look like from the perspectives of like Afrofuturism or indigenous traditions or Islam, you know, Islam is growing in the world. In the real sense, the future is religious, not atheistic. You know, and so just all you know, feminism and and queerness and disability and so on, where do these fit in? You know, there's just no reference whatsoever to uh, to these um, different sort of approaches, different ways of thinking, modes of of they're thought. Not, so but on. they're
0: not kind of obviously incompatible with. The future they envision, right? I, I I got to assume that if you ask Nick Bostrom, is it fine to be gay or choose your gender in the world of the future on on one of the thousand planets that that our descendants live on? I assume he'd say fine, sure. And I, I don't I don't quite get the tension there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, that
1: you know, if you read, for example, his article, uh, "Why I Want to Be Posthuman When I Grow Up." I mean, it is deeply classist, you know, his vision of what it means to become post-human and so on. It's not, I mean, explicitly, it's not what watching is, sports. What, what's or, a
0: classist? You don't get to watch sports? Okay. I'm with, with you, sports, buddy. I'm with you. Yeah. Let's bring these guys I, down. You, um, but but. You, you play jazz
1: and um, cogitate philosophical issues rather than, you know, having a beer with your buddies. I mean, this this is just one example, but, there, there but many,
0: he's was, that's mandatory,
1: is he? Or is he? I mean, I, I, I'm. I mean, I think. I think for probably him, if there are certain things like
0: disability in Utopia, it's not Utopia anymore. And
1: well,
0: okay, so I, but he is saying that it, you would have the option of changing any disability you have. That's not I, the same as discriminating against disabled people, right? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's.
1: You know, the, the, I think if part of the problem is that if one uh, does not design the future with people rather than for, with other groups, other perspectives and so on, rather than for these other perspectives, you're probably not going to get a good outcome. And, and what, again, part of why it's significant that it's so striking, there's virtually no reference to what the future should look like from all of these different perspectives mm-hmm. um, is that when one is designing a future and and these other perspectives aren't even on one's radar, mm-hmm. um, not even there, you know, on the dotting the horizon of uh, recognized possibility, then you're just going to get a future that is not going to be inclusive and so I mean there's lots more to say about this, um, but maybe another thing I wanted to, to stress is, in addition to worries about what exactly this uh, future would look like. Also, so here's a side note. I'm looping back to what I just said. Um, You know, even what the future should look like from the perspective of non-human animals. I mean, McCaskill is explicit in his book that given the existence of wild animal suffering, our destruction of the environment might be net positive. And so is there even a place for not just indigenous communities and you know other groups of humans and cultures and so on but even the 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 natural, so-called natural world around us it's not even clear that that there is maybe the, the ultimately what you what they would want is to just digitize everything then you get to control how much suffering there is all you know all the the subjective mm-hmm. experiences that are uh, being set. so that th- that's part of the issue but the, the another realization that uh, played a significant role in me parting ways with this community that I was a part of for a decade was sort of studying uh, the history of utopian movements that became violent and realizing that a lot of these movements had at their core two main ingredients. One was, of course, this utopian vision of the future, in which we live forever, we've abolished suffering, and there's you know near infinite or infinite amounts of value. And the other is a... Kind of utilitarian mode of moral reasoning. And when you take those and you put them together, you say, okay, the ends, let's say the ends can sometimes justify the means. Well, here in this situation, the ends are a literal utopia of just endless value. Well, what exactly is off the table? And so this was, Peter Singer himself has echoed this, citing some of my articles. This, this was the main thrust of my uh, 2021 Ian article. Ah, uh, basically saying that long-termism, the ideology itself, contains the ingredients necessary to quote-unquote justify, in the minds of true believers like I was, extreme measures that are violent, maybe even genocidal. That sounds maybe hyperbolic. I don't think it is. Wait, Peter. It's, Peter embraced that critique. Yeah. Of long-termism. Okay. Yeah. So he wrote an article for Project Syndicate, uh, in which he he. Recapitulated these exact uh, points and said, "I mean, the, the gist was the long-termism itself, the ideology, could be dangerous." And he drew uh, uh, an analogy with Marxism. Marx never envisioned, you know, his his views being uh, misused and abused, but they ended up uh, enabling, you know, mass atrocities. And so he was concerned. Uh, about long-termism for exactly that reason. And so, you know, back in 2021, when I initially articulated these concerns, um, my worries were hypothetical. But if you fast forward to this year, um, and I should say they were hypothetical, um, and they drew from a scenario that was put forward by a Swedish uh, mathematician, uh, statistician named Oli Hagström in his book, uh, Here Be Dragons strom is very sympathetic with long-termism. But at one point in the book, he worries that if there's a politician who can do the arithmetic and they take Bostrom's argument to heart, and there's a one in a billion chance that some lunatic is in Germany and threatens the vast and glorious future that awaits us, to quote Toby Ord, um, then that politician might feel justified in just nuking. All of Germany, and so this again. This was a hypothetical concern, but if you fast forward to this year, you literally have people like Yudkowsky arguing in the pages of Time Magazine that the uh, AGI apocalypse is so, uh, um, uh, you know, is is just around the temporal corner, and that if we create AGI, the entire vast and glorious future, as to actually to quote uh, Yudkowsky, our glorious transhuman future that will be utterly annihilated. And so we should bomb data set. Or we should be, military should be willing to bomb data centers uh, to prevent the AGI apocalypse, even at the risk of triggering thermonuclear war. And when he was asked on social media, quote, how many people are allowed to die to prevent AGI, end quote, parentheses, from being developed in the near future, his response was basically everyone. He literally says this. Well, as that would kind of would,
0: defeat the purpose, wouldn't
1: it? So, I mean... Uh, On his view, um, thermonuclear war is not going to be probably not going to be an existential catastrophe, and I think the best science uh, backs him up. So it's probably not. You know, there was a study from two thousand and twenty that found that in all out thermonuclear exchange between the U.S. and Russia would kill five billion people. So that's a three billion, no three billion people uh, who would survive. And, you know, be able to carry on civilization at ultimate. And so he said, he, literally, he said, you know, as long as we stay above the minimum viable human population, then, mm-hmm. quote, there's still a chance of reaching the stars someday. And so that is exactly the kind of thing that I was worried about. And I'll give you one last example. I know I've spoken for a while. But one last example is uh, uh, at an AI safety, so AI safety workshop that was held in Berkeley uh, and run by somebody who works for uh Jadkowski's Institute and another person who worked for Open Philanthropy, major EA, long-termist uh, organization. Um, so they organized this workshop and they were talking about ways to slow down uh, the development ca- capabilities research.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a number of people proposed on the in the meeting minutes, recorded in the meeting minutes, that one possibility is to assassinate AI researchers at OpenAI and DeepMind. And they literally said, be Ted Kaczynski, go to your cabin in Montana and send bombs in the mail to OpenAI and, uh, and DeepMind. So this is exactly the kind of, you get utopian thinking, plus a broadly utilitarian mode of moral reasoning, you put them together, what's off the table, assassinations, thermonuclear war. No. And so that was what I was worried about. We live in a world that I was warning about <laughs> back in 2021. Okay. So that's another reason that I left long-term and thought like this this is dangerous. This is not, you know, something, something's something gone wrong with, with the view. If it could
0: potentially justify in the minds of true believers, extreme measures uh, like violence. Yeah, I mean, almost all views can potentially justify something or other. But but anyway, let me say, we've been talking for almost an hour.
1: Can uh, I mention something
0: real fast, if, if you don't mind? If Just, it's really yes, fast.
1: You're, you're totally Unless it's right.
0: the kind of thing I can use to keep people on the edge of their seats as I bring down the paywall, which I'm about to do, but go ahead. <laughs> so, I would just say that the,
1: yes, any belief system can can be uh, taken to some kind of extreme. Yeah. My point is that this utilitarian reasoning and the utopianism; those are right at the very core of long termism. Those are essential features of long termism.
0: Wait, say so, so what are the words that are uh, together at the core? Wait, say that again. I miss it. Utopianism yep. and basically utilitarianism. Utopianism. So those are right
1: there at the core. If you get rid of those, you kind of get rid of you know, long termism is just not long termism anymore. And so it's I, that's why I think long termism is different from like all of yeah, these other I,
0: I, I think I, I think I will want to challenge that on the other side okay. of the paywall. But but um, so yeah. so we've been talking close an hour. As regular listeners and viewers know, uh, as a rule, uh, the you know there's this pretty long public part of the podcast. However, we have to pay the rent uh, for the non-zero newsletter, the non-zero podcast. So the rest of this, and I plan to, to go on for quite a while. I think we've both got time. Um, will be available only to paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter, which you can become by Googling non-zero and Substack, or by clicking a link in the show notes in your podcast app. Uh, once you've done that, you can go to the post or the latest uh, podcast, like this one, go to the Substack. You, you can find the post as a paid subscriber, and at that point, you can by clicking something on the right-hand side of the post um, set up a feed that will allow you forevermore to just automatically have access to these uh, overtimes, uh, and and there will be no more uh, hassles. Um, uh, plus, you'll you'll uh, know that you're supporting uh, a cause that. Presumably you want to support. Uh if you don't, then maybe this paying paying up is not for you. But but you'll be supporting the non-zero newsletter, and non-zero podcast. Thanks to everybody uh, who has stayed with us this far, whether or not you're gonna follow us, thanks to those who are gonna follow us. Uh are you you happy, Emil? There's nothing you want to add quickly before we for the for the fast uh, public viewing audience before we uh move uh behind the velvet rope. No, just to thank you for having
1: me on be- before we continue the conversation. Okay. So, yeah, Okay, Th-
0: this Great. will go on for a while. Uh, so we're heading into overtime.